There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you from a post-Thanksgiving overeating stupor here in the mountains of Utah. A bit, brief bit of housekeeping. Thanks again to everyone who came out to Brandon Sanderson's Dragonsteel Con. I met tons of Page Break listeners and people from my street team, which was very cool. With any luck, they'll invite me back next year, and I'll get to see even more of you. The Montego Kickstarter is going fantastically. We crossed 300% of the goal last week, making this my most successful Kickstarter to date, both in number of supporters and amount of money. For those of you who haven't gotten behind it yet, we now have maps signed by Ben McSweeney, my interior artist for Glass Immortals. There are also a few tuckerization levels left for anyone who wants to get their name in the next book. Now, on with the show! My guest this week is New York Times bestselling author and wargame blogger Robison Wells. Rob is known for his breakout young adult suspense novel Variant and its sequel Feedback, as well as a number of other science fiction and fantasy novels. He also co-wrote The Warning with James Patterson and now runs a popular wargame hobby website, The Wargame Explorer. Rob and I chat at length about the wargaming industry and its various quirks and foibles. We touch on Rob's struggle to maintain his writing career with schizophrenia and how much painting miniatures has helped him maintain and regulate his creative side. Enjoy my conversation with Robison Wells. So, man, how how has the painting been going? Uh, the painting is going good. I'm I'm in a little bit of a uh, a funk right now. Nothing is really catching my fancy. I, I've got this thing going on, which you've probably followed if you follow me on Twitter, um, called The Hobby Street. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, where I paint every day for at least 30 minutes, uh, and then I post uh, the results on social media. And the whole point is to not show off like I'm so fantastic, but to show off like it's like forming good habits. And um, creating good habits. I'm on today was day 536 of of in a row, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Yeah, but I'm also in kind of a burnout phase where I'm like, uh, I'll paint a little bit, but I'm not really into it today, and I need to find something to to jumpstart me, and so I'm not sure what it is. When you say that nothing is catching your eye, do you? Is this, do you look at these things? Cause like, so miniatures is something that's very outside of my kind of realm of experience because every time I've tried to either paint or play a game with miniatures, I always get super intimidated. Um, <laughs> but I was curious what, what exactly is it that kind of gets you going when it, when you look at a new mini? There are a lot of things. Um, sometimes it's just the mini is really cool and intricate and, Looks like it's going to be a big challenge, and that's a, a good example. Um, some of the bigger stuff, uh, I don't know if your audience knows Wargaming at all, but like Warhammer Age of Sigmar, I've recently been into painting Sylvaneth, which are, they're kind of wood elves, but they're kind of like trees come to life, kind of ants, but kind of elves. They're weird, but I've been painting those, and those have been like, really intricate and detailed but at the same time i i got into another game called conquest the last argument of kings which is i got into that on purpose because the scale is probably twice the size of a regular miniature and so they're so much easier to paint yeah and i just it's like painting on easy mode and uh and so it it really depends it's some a lot of the time because I'm running my blog about wargaming, I will pick up miniatures 
that I want to review for the site. Like there's a game like this conquest last argument of Kings. I got them so that I could review them for the site. The same thing with, um, a song of ice and fire. They have a miniatures game and I just reviewed that for the site. And so I've been painting those miniatures when there are some that are our passion projects for me, like, uh, Warhammer 40 K is, is relaunching after 30 years of writing them out of the lore, they're relaunching their their squats, which are space dwarves. And that's what I got started on 30 years ago. Here I am, 44. <laughs> I got started in those probably when I was 12, bought my first box, and, uh, and was just hooked on them. And then after, I think, during second edition of Warhammer 40K, they wrote them out of the lore, um, and they wrote them out saying they were completely wiped out and destroyed and they don't exist anymore. And But there's always been this uh, this undercurrent in the fan community saying, bring back the squats, bring back the squats. And this year they're finally doing it. And so I have some, I, I mean, right here in front of me, um, squat models that I have been painting. And just it just thrills me. It brings me back to when I was 12. Yeah. And... So that's stuff that I love. So it's it's stuff that I love. It's stuff that I feel obligated to review and a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. What um what is what makes a bad miniature? I'm kind of curious now. Um for me, a lot of it is bad detail, which generally comes from bad plastic and bad molding. Mm-hmm. I really like miniatures that I consider bad and I apologize to anyone who loves them. I think all the D and D miniatures are bad. They they're made out of this uh, crappy plastic that doesn't hold detail well. Um, so when you paint them, you're not sure. Is this like a belt loop? Is this a bag on the belt? Is this uh, the hilt of the sword? Like you can't tell what stuff is. And the metal is kind of, or the, not the metal, the, the plastic is a little flimsy. And it, they, I just, I, I hate the D&D miniatures. And um, some of the others, Reaper used to be that same way where they had this really crappy plastic and the paint didn't even adhere to it very well. Um, so it, it depends. I, I buy so many miniatures. Yeah. I have, I have shelves and shelves of miniatures. And when I get stuff like that, um, that I get for reviewing stuff for the site, I will almost always paint enough that I can review them. And then I will give the rest to my 13 year old son who loves them and he will paint anything. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't care what it is. And he will paint them in all sorts of bright colors. And so they all get used, but I don't necessarily love them all. <laughs> now, have you been painting for that long or just into the wargaming that long? Um, I I took a break. So I got started in wargaming when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And it was, there's a, a magazine called Wargames Illustrated that comes out of the UK and it is primarily historical wargaming. And somehow, and I don't know how, but four copies of this magazine ended up in the house. And I think my dad maybe brought them home from work because my dad's a fantasy guy. He's, I mean, he read us the Lord of the Rings when I was about that age. And somehow these copies of Wargames Illustrated ended up in the house. And there was a rule set that was a single page for playing a Vietnam war game. And and I was just blown away. Like, all I needed were my little green army men, which I had, and here were a page of rules that a nine-year-old could understand, and you didn't need to buy source books, and you didn't need to buy hard hard book, hardback books, and you didn't need anything. You just needed this magazine. And so I painted up little green army men, some of them blue and some of them, some with blue helmets, some of them with black helmets. And I would play this Vietnam army game for years. Um, and then I got into uh, my first uh, games workshop miniatures. When I was probably about 11, I bought some skeletons. And then when I was 12, I bought these squats and I painted on and off throughout high school and then in the early days of my 
marriage, I painted a lot, um, quite extensively. I had a whole room dedicated to it. And then, and my brother, who's also been a guest on your podcast, Dan Wells, mm-hmm. um, he was into it too. And, and every Thursday, I remember every Thursday I would drive down. I live in Salt Lake City. He lives in Provo, or he did at the time. And I would drive down every Thursday and we would play uh, Warhammer 40K all day on Thursday. And, um, but I remember very distinctly when we were, uh, what year would this have been? Probably about 2004, 2005. Um, we went on a family vacation to a nice condo up uh, one of the canyons. And I brought all my Warhammer stuff. He brought all his Warhammer stuff. And we said, we are going to play and it'll be fun. We've got a whole weekend, uh, or I think it was a whole week at this condo. And what we didn't realize is that at that condo, we discovered that his oldest kid was able to reach the table and take models off the table. (laughs) And that was the last war game that he and I ever played for about 15 years. Oh. It just immediately like, uh-oh, kids are involved. It's over. Yeah. Um. So I took a break for a long time from it, and I got back into it um, a little bit. When my first book was published, uh, Dan actually gave me a starter set uh, the night that I was having my book launch for my first nationally published book variant. Uh, Dan gave me a starter set for uh, Privateer Press's game War Machine. And he and Howard Taylor were getting really into War Machine and some other guys. And so I got that and I started to paint again, started to paint again. And then I just fell into it. I suddenly, I had book money coming in and it was good book money. And I'm like, this is no longer an unaffordable hobby because miniatures is kind of an unaffordable hobby. But I could afford it. And so I was buying a lot of miniatures. I was painting a lot of miniatures. uh, And I've just been hooked ever since. Uh, So that was probably uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it pretty steadily since then. But then it took a major upswing about three years ago when I decided that I was going to get into... um, I don't know what the decision was. I just decided that I was going to get into it more seriously. Yeah. I think a lot of it was that there has been this massive boom in online, uh, especially YouTube, um, wargaming channels. And there's so much content put out, uh, battle reports and painting tutorials and terrain tutorials and, and lore videos where they just talk about the history of the orcs. And, and, um, and I think that I fell into it on YouTube and I'm like, I really want to get back into this. And I'm, I've got a good job now. I can afford it again because there was a little while that I couldn't. And, um, and ever since then, I've just been, I dove into it and then I decided to make it into a profitable side career. Well, and I was, I was a bit curious about that because I know you've tweeted about this a little bit. Uh, is, is the blog is because you've got the Wargaming Explorer. Um, is it something that brings in an income? It does. It brings in, it has been growing like crazy. Uh, I started it March 2nd or May 2nd of 2021. This last month, so July, we broke 70,000 page views in a month. Dang. Yeah. So it's growing pretty fast. And I get paid in basically two ways, ad revenue and in affiliate marketing. So uh, in affiliate marketing is if I do a product review and I say, hey, this is a really cool Space Dwarf, you should buy this. And I put a link to usually Amazon, but I also have an affiliate in um, the UK because about a third of my um, readership is in the UK. Yeah, Europe is so much bigger for wargaming than the US is. Um, and, and I... At this point, I'm making probably about enough 
to pay my car payment every month. Now that's that's not nothing. No, it's not. And and the the nice thing is that it's growing every single month. Like I run the numbers on the first of every month and every month is a record breaking month. <laughs> and um so it's only going up and I'm loving it and it's it's fun. So Oh that that's very cool. I um I was curious how you think as someone who has been involved on some levels for decades um, with this hobby, how has it changed with kind of the advent of um, kind of the print on demand and uh, you know, home, uh, home 3d printers, you know, things like that. Is that changing the hobby at all? Oh yeah. Dramatically. Yes. Um, I have a 3d printer, but I've got a a filament printer. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are two kinds of printers. There's filament printers and resin printers and filament printers are good for big stuff. Um, like terrain pieces. I've printed off big churches and farmhouses and those kind of things on this filament printer to use as scenery. But resin printers, you can have uh, miniatures that have every bit as much crispness and fidelity as anything that you would get from any game company, assuming that you find the right uh, seller, because there's a lot of garbage out there too. There's a lot of um, 3D printing files that aren't very good, but um, you can find some just gorgeous stuff. And the big question on everyone's lips is, is this going to kill the big game companies? Because as 3D printers get better and better and cheaper and cheaper, the reason I don't have one is because the apartment I live in, I don't have a room with good ventilation. Yeah. And um, resin has an awful smell. Um, and that's getting better. They've improved technology, but I just don't have a place where I would put a resin printer. Um, but uh, so everyone is curious as to whether 3D printers are going to collapse the market for uh, Games Workshop, for Mantic, for Wargames Atlantic, for all of these companies that make so much money on miniatures. Miniatures are frigging expensive. Yeah. Like a box of 10 Space Marines is like $60. It's ridiculous. And what I I don't think that 3D printing, and of course, making any predictions about the future of technology is just (laughs) completely stupid. Right. But I think... When it comes to Games Workshop, which is, I mean, the next company that is as close to Games Workshop as possible is, um, I can't remember the name of the company, Asmodee, uh, who does Star Wars Legion. And they're like a tenth the size of Games Workshop. They're just nowhere compared. Games Workshop dominates because it controls so much intellectual property. Yeah. And that is where their money is made. And that's why they can charge such a premium for these things is because they own the intellectual property. Uh, they they have they call it the Black Library, but it's their fiction division where they have something like four hundred novels that are just uh, all about their different worlds that they play in. And and I don't see that going away anytime soon. And so I don't know if there's going to be a time where uh games workshop starts selling 3d printer files Mm -hmm. in some kind of i knowing games workshop games workshop is extremely litigious if you (laughs) if you they they send out cease and desist letters to everybody yeah um but if there was some way like with with music how uh drm for music if there was some way that you could um lock a 3D printing file so that it's non-transferable. Yeah. I could see Games Workshop going down that road, but I don't see it for at least 10 years. The thing is, is that 3D printing is a hobby unto itself. It's not exactly plug and play yet. It's getting better and better and it's growing really, really fast, but you still need quite a setup. You need you need a 3D printer, then you need a, a wash uh, and cleaning station, 
and then you need a curing station with UV lights, and you need all of this stuff, and you need a bucket of isopropyl alcohol, and it's um, it's very elaborate what you need to be able to do resin printing. And I think that until it becomes as easy as, well, I'm just going to spend 20 minutes driving to the game store, pick me up a box of models that I can come home and assemble immediately, until we reach that point, there's always going to be a market for uh, pre-made miniatures. Yeah. Well, yeah, and they, I, I mean, I got, I got to imagine that places like Games Workshop are, they just have the, they have the advantage of lots and lots of experience, the advantage of lots and lots of designs that are just there. But I do imagine that there's already people that, I mean, I, I guess as far as you can pirate those designs without having files, you know, like imitating them um, and selling them, I imagine that's a thing, right? It is. Um, and, there's two different worlds of that, and one is squeaking by without the cease and desist letters. There's like a great a great one is uh, Victoria Miniatures, which is a, a company in um, Australia. So in Warhammer 40k, there are the Imperial Guard, which are you've got your Space Marines, which are your superhumans that can take any amount of beating and take down a whole army all by themselves. But then the grunts in the army are the Imperial Guard, and they come from a million different worlds, so they all have different look and aesthetic looks to them. Games Workshop currently only sells three different regiments, but this company, Victoria Miniatures in Australia, sells like eight more that have been mentioned in the lore, so we know what they look like, and they're creating models that look like what Games Workshop has described, um, but they're not copying anything that Games Workshop has done. So they're able to skate by, and and they're selling those, and they do very well. And like these Space Dwarves, their War Games Atlantic sold their own Space Dwarves. Every, it seems like every company has sold Space Dwarves for the past 20 years because everyone has wanted SWATs to come back. So that kind of stuff exists and doesn't get slapped down. But uh, there was a very prominent wargamer, and I say prominent in the fact that he's like notorious. Uh, a lot of people just hate the guy. Um, a YouTuber who's really into 3D printing, but also very much into being a contrarian, hating uh, Games Workshop. And he created some files that were 100% knockoffs of war game or games workshop miniatures and they immediately slapped him with the cease and desist yeah. and and he had to comply and so um so it's a little bit of both and there's there are always places where people will fill in the gaps like another place where people are filling in the gaps is um warhammer fantasy used to be uh dwarves and elves and men and dragons and then Games Workshop kind of blew that system up and created this whole new fantasy world where everything was a, a little different. And they did it for a couple of reasons, which we can talk about later if you want. But um, one of the armies that they had that everyone loved were the Tomb Kings, which were essentially ancient Egyptians. Um, there were mummies and liches and... Um, and everything was very Egyptian, and that game doesn't exist anymore. Game Workshop has a like they've hinted that they're going to bring back that Warhammer Fantasy, but they haven't. And so, 3D printers have jumped on that, and they're like, "Well, if you're not bringing it back, we're bringing it back." And they there are a ton of Tomb King models available on 3D printing. Yeah, that's fascinating because I I imagine because it, it's Wargaming is one of those kind of hobbies, and I say this as somebody who who knows people that do it, but I've never done it myself. Um, it's it's one of those hobbies that I think in the mainstream it would be considered quite niche, but it's but it's still large enough to support you know stores in lots of different cities and towns and things like that. Um, and and there's a lot of love that goes into it, a lot of love, a lot of you know sometimes obsession, right? 
yeah. And so, so I, I've got to imagine that it is just, especially with 3D printing, it is just constantly evolving and lots of, you know, like bickering and legal stuff. And uh, it's got to be, there's got to be some, I don't know, sort of uh, comparison that we could make even to, you know, pirating ebooks, right? Oh, yeah. But it's but it but it's a physical thing, which is very interesting to me. Um, that it's like if everybody suddenly could get a you know they could print their own novels uh-huh. in their home, kind of really easily, you know, bound novels. Yeah. But uh, it is kind of crazy that that has jumped forward so much in I don't know the last few years, even. Yeah. You know what I in your case, I think about your books all the time. I, I've read your first two um, uh, Powder Mage books, mm-hmm. and there are two game systems that kind of made a splash um, this year that are uh, Flintlock Fantasy. There's one called Silver Bayonet and another called Sludge, and they're both fantastic games. I reviewed them both on the site, and um, and they they don't use... They're called uh, miniatures agnostic, which means you can use any miniatures you want and and just convert them however you want, and they just sell the rule book. Yeah. But I keep thinking Powder Mage needs to be snapped up as an IP and turned into a war game. I think it would be phenomenal. <laughs> I, there would be there would be five very enthusiastic people playing it, <laughs> and that would be it. <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. It, it is funny because I, I do get tagged um, uh, like a lot of authors. You know, I, I fall on Instagram. I follow the, the hashtags for, you know, like Powder Mage, Powder Mage Trilogy, Brian McClellan, you know, things like that. And I get tagged pretty frequently for anybody who does a flintlock uh, miniature yeah um and and that's always fun to see them pop up and 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 it's usually somebody else's game and and doesn't have anything to do with powder mage but they clearly threw it in because it's flintlock um but uh, i do love seeing those things painted and looking cool yeah i think that you could really uh i don't know even just an indie game i think it would be awesome yeah <laughs> that's fun the, the thing with those kind of games is that i i realized at some point um probably after i did x-wing for a while um and then i switched over to armada uh star wars armada and uh and then i didn't i collected all the ships when it first came out and the first couple of expansions and then i realized at some point that i much prefer looking at them than i do actually playing any of the games um and I'm, I, I, is that a kind of a subset of, you know, painters and collectors in, in wargaming? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, the, uh, there's a, a company and I can't, uh, I feel stupid. I can't remember their, it's Wargame Strategy and something, but it, it, the abbreviation is WSS, but they, uh, put out every year and they just released the new one, um, uh, the Great Wargaming Survey. And they will gather up, they spread it far and wide and try to get as many people involved in it as possible. And they ask, one of the questions they ask is, how often do you play the game? And most gamers uh, who consider themselves gamers um, play less than once every two or three months. (laughs) Um, Miniatures, there are some people who, like, twice a week they're at the game store and they're playing. Um, But so many people are in it for the collecting and the painting and just the community because there's a great online community. There's a lot of toxic online communities as there are with anything. There's a great online community for it. And the fun of painting stuff, putting it on the shelf saying I did that with me because I paint so much. I have had to 
start flipping a lot of stuff on eBay where I will paint up some armies and build them up and build them up and then uh, have a big sale. And and it helps fund the habit of buying more and more miniatures. Yeah. But also, like, I did it um, a couple months ago where I sold uh, a bunch of stuff as for a, a fundraiser for uh, Save the Children in Ukraine. And we raised almost $2,000 for that, which was pretty fantastic. And, and it was just selling stuff on eBay. And so there is definitely a, a culture in wargaming that is all about collecting and painting and doesn't care as much about playing the game. And it's interesting because it goes in cycles and it goes by game. Like Warhammer 40K right now, is kind of universally hated <laughs> the current edition it's in it's in ninth edition and it has a lot of rules bloat it is it is very clumsy to play because there's just so many rules and um and they're little nitpicky things where uh unless you memorize every rule book of every army which you can't possibly do then your opponent is going to at some point in the game say well i'm going to spend a command point and i'm going to play this ability and you're like i've never heard of that ability in my life i didn't know you could do that and and it just is driving people bananas and so i think less fewer people are playing 40k i don't think any fewer people are buying 40k because I think people will always buy 40k. Yeah. Uh, and well, and Games Workshop just just released their financial report because they're a public company, and so and they had once again they broke their profit records, and um, so they're doing just fine, even though the game isn't. And we're expecting that the new game will be released sometime next year, the new edition. Because Games Workshop is on like a three-year cycle where every three years they'll release a new edition. Eighth edition was very pared down and very simplistic. And then it's just kind of rolled out of control. So, yeah, some people don't play just because the rules are bad. Some people go to different things. Well, and, and something that is worth saying is all this time we've been talking about the big game companies... We've been neglecting an entire arm of uh, wargaming, which is historical wargaming. Right. Historical wargaming and sci-fi fantasy wargaming do not mix very well at all. <laughs> but historical wargaming is huge, especially in Europe. Yeah. Um, but also, um, there's a, a very big um, group in the eastern United States. They just had their... Um, annual event called Historicon where they got together and they ran a bunch of games and and historical wargaming seems very unaffected because they run on a completely different model where they don't there is no company that dominates anything you use whatever rules you want and generally the rules are written by someone in your gaming group and they can be played at two millimeter scale or 15 millimeter scale or whatever scale you want. And it's, it's a completely different world from Games Workshop. And of course, Games Workshop is a company that's worth billions of dollars. Yeah. And min historical wargaming is not, but historical wargaming is like its own thing that exists and seems immune to all of the drama and all of the uh no one no one is 3d printing two millimeter historical miniatures <laughs> like they just you buy those yeah right oh that's that's fascinating i wouldn't even have thought to bring up historical wargaming even though i am aware of it um it's uh that and that's, that's kind of funny comparing it because i I, I guess in, you know, I, I live in kind of fantasy land, right? Because I write fantasy novels. Um, so that's kind of my default. But uh, but that is like a, you know, like historical wargaming. Um, there's uh, like, there, what's it? Do they call, um, when they do reenacting, do they call it LARPing? Or do they just call it reenacting? They call it reenacting. Because it's that's like the equivalent of... Yeah, if it's sci-fi fantasy, then it's LARPing. Yeah, okay, okay. If it's... 
historical it's reenacting. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that it seemed like a good comparison. Uh, but that's very funny. Yeah. So, so how did you go from your kind of your kind of career background went from you were a poli sci major and you got a marketing degree and then at some point you started writing novels which funny enough because i know you from your science fiction novels um and funny enough you started off with a romantic comedy is that right <laughs> yeah uh, my first book was a romantic comedy i was and, in a i was in a writing group with uh dan my brother and uh brandon sanderson and uh, a couple other guys and um before any of us were published and i was writing a fantasy novel because they were all writing fantasy novels and but i didn't read fantasy at the time and so it was so bad (laughs) it was just like it was the most derivative it wasn't even like a tolkien ripoff it was like a I don't know what it was a ripoff of. It was like a, a ripoff of like, I don't know. It, it wasn't good. It was like someone who had heard the words goblin and dwarf yeah. and <laughs> wrote a book about them. Uh, and it was really bad. And so I got, I fell back on the advice of write what you know. And I didn't write a story about my own personal uh, romance but I wrote a story about a town that I lived in, uh, this little town in New Mexico that was full of just quirky, bizarre people. It's just a strange little town. I loved it. It's Grants, New Mexico. I love the town. I lived there for a year and full of fun people. And I just decided to set a book there. And uh, I wrote a romantic comedy and it got published. It was a small press. Um, so yes, it is my first book, but I don't consider it my first, like, I, I think I have two careers because I have those three books. I published three books with that small press. And then I took like four years off. Um, and in the meantime, I went to grad school, got my MBA, studied marketing, got a, a marketing job. And well, actually the way that the science fiction happened is that I graduated during the Great Recession. And so uh, when I entered the MBA program, they said that they had a 97% job placement rate at graduation. 97% of people had jobs when they graduated. Mm. And uh, the year that I graduated, it was 43%. And just no one had jobs. And so I didn't have anywhere to go. We had spent all our savings on um, on going to grad school, my wife and I. And, and at that point, we had three kids. We had a baby that had just been born. And um, we didn't know where we were going because we didn't have a job yet. We didn't know what city we'd end up in. And um, so we moved back in with my parents. And here I was, 30, I was 31, 32 at the time. And with three kids, moved back in with my parents. And every day, I would... My dad had a spare office and every day I would go in there and I'd spend the first half of the day applying for jobs and I would spend the second half of the day writing Mm -hmm. and, um, and something clicked at one point. Basically what happened is that Dan came to me and he said, I am going with a group of people to world fantasy. I was, I was super depressed at the time. Like I couldn't find a job. Everything was bad. I was defaulting on credit cards. Um, everything was lousy. And Dan came to me and he's like, I know everything sucks for you right now. Um, he had just been published. He said, I'm going to world fantasy. Uh, if you have a novel to pitch, I will introduce you to all the agents and editors that I know. And I said, okay. But the problem was I didn't have a novel to pitch and it needed to be either science fiction or fantasy. And I knew I couldn't write fantasy because I tried that once. <laughs> but at the time, it was a year after Hunger Games had come out. Yeah. And um, and there, it was the beginning of the rise of the dystopian. And I got an idea for a story. I wrote it in 11 days. Th- that was the other thing. He's, this, he's saying, I'll pay your way. 
It's in two months, two months from now. Yeah. Uh, I wrote the book in 11 days. I spent the next six weeks revising it and revising it. Um, went to World Fantasy, completely bombed. Um, didn't get any good contacts from anyone. Uh, it was completely lousy, but it had motivated me to write this book. And, um, and then after I got home, Dan said, well, why don't you send it to my agent? And so I wrote the world's worst query letter, <laughs> which was, I mean, the, people spent, they hate me because they spent so much time, like going over all the rules of how to write a query letter and, and all the, all the articles that have been written about, this is the proper way to do it. And my query letter was basically, hi, I'm Rob. I'm Dan's brother. He said I could send you this. What do you think? <laughs> and I sent this book to her, but she loved it and she picked it up and then it sold in a three book deal to HarperCollins and the rest is history. Yeah. I understand that you have kind of fallen away from writing in recent years. Um, is 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 that true, or is that just publicly true? Is is your publishing fallen away from? Um. So here's something that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet today. Um. I have schizophrenia. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I wrote my publishing deal was really good, and it expanded from three books into five books. And I was writing full time and uh, had a nice house and everything was going well. And um, and I was falling apart mentally. Uh, the schizophrenia came on uh, while I was writing my second book. And it wasn't diagnosed until like seven years later. But the symptoms were coming on. We didn't know what it was, but everything was going really badly. And it basically got to a point where I couldn't write. I finished the books that I was contracted for. And then my agent is phenomenal. Uh, She's just, I mean, and I don't mean that she's like a good agent. She is a good agent, but she's just a good person. And so she understood that I was sick. And she said, you can't write your own stuff right now, but I'm going to find you write for higher jobs. So I did a lot of write for hire, ghost writing, um, a lot of YA stuff that was written from about uh, 2015 to 2018 books in that area. I wrote a lot of uh, other people's books and and I really grew to start hating it. And and then I wrote I got my biggest break which was a book that was not necessarily right for hire. It was co-written with James Patterson. Yeah. So, of course, the biggest author in the world um, by like a factor of 10. uh, And I got to write a book with him. It was a miserable experience and primarily miserable because I was sick. Yeah. And I wasn't writing well. And but then it came out. And it did better than any book that I've ever written. It hit the New York Times bestseller list. So I got that feather in my cap. Uh, And then I just, I never made a conscious decision, but I fell out of love with writing. 
Like, you know, I mean, you're a writer. Uh, you know, that fire in the belly, that like, I've got a story to tell and I need to tell this story. I've got so many ideas. Like, I don't have that anymore. Like, I don't feel like I have a book in me that is waiting to come out. Um, I've played around with a couple of ideas, but um, I think one of the things is that my my day job, I've got a, a terrific day job um, where I work for a digital marketing agency um, and I, I write for them, um, but I tallied it up last year at the end of uh, December last year. Uh, in that time, I, w- I was writing web copy and emails and uh, blogs and uh, product descriptions. And I tallied it up that at the end of December in one year, I had written 640,000 words of marketing copy. Yeah. And I just think, and that's gone down. Like the company has realized this is unsustainable. We're killing our writers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, it was during that time where I thought, you know, I'm not enjoying, I don't have the fire in the belly of writing books anymore but I'm learning so much from this new job about digital marketing. I do have the fire in the belly for wargaming. Let's combine the two and let's see if I can start a website that uses all of the knowledge that I have gained from this digital marketing agency and see if I could turn that into a living. Yeah. And, uh, I call it my get rich slow scheme (laughs) because I've set uh, financial goals for it. um, But I sincerely believe that if I do it right and if I stick with it, that it will replace my income when it hits the three year mark. And right now we're at the two, one year and three months mark. But I mean, just based on, the metrics and on the growth that we're on that it will replace the income. And that's, that's phenomenal. And, and that's kind of what I love. And, but so I, I, I do, I'm not writing a book. I don't have any desire to write a book. One interesting thing. um, I started to write a memoir because uh, about schizophrenia and I wrote one chapter and the day that I wrote the chapter, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a memoir. Um, it's going to be my new thing. And the day that I wrote the first chapter, and I was really proud of it, I had to take a drive to Idaho, and I was in a rollover car accident. Oh, I didn't realize that that was the same day. It was the same. The same, like, I finished the chapter, I got in the car. Oh, my God. Gosh. And I left and I had a, a traumatic brain injury. And um, so I did one of the things that's funny with when you get a traumatic brain injury, the doctor tells you, you need to take it easy. But one of the things they say is don't think too hard. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> which, which I didn't even know that you could hurt yourself by thinking too hard. But he's like, don't try to do anything hard. Like don't read books. Don't do stuff. Don't think too hard. So for six weeks, I was completely unable to write the book, the memoir. And then when six weeks were done, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not interested anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, I think every author has had that experience of, of starting something that's very exciting to them. And then, I mean, hopefully most of us haven't been distracted in such a uh, a severe way, Yeah. but then life hits them in some way and then they realize, well, maybe I wasn't as excited about this thing as I thought I was. And that's, that's always so frustrating, kind of looking back and going, wait a second, I thought that I really wanted to do this. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Um, was... I mean, I, I don't know if this is probing too hard, but with the severe mental illness, was the brain injury? I mean, that that's got to complicate things, right? Um, yeah. So the brain, the mental illness, yes, it really did. Um, but it was weird. Uh, um, 
so I have schizophrenia and it's I'm high functioning schizophrenic and I'm on um, about three years ago. My doctor put me on a new medicine, which I call my miracle medicine that I have not since I've been on this medicine. I have not had a single bout of psychosis, no hallucinations, no delusions. I am stable. I still have a lot of depression. I still have a lot of anxiety. But, well, and I'll tease your listeners. <laughs> I also I, I have one schizophrenic symptom that is the one that I wrote about in the memoir. And the chapter title of the memoir is The Thing We Don't Talk About. <laughs> And that was my, that's the symptom. And it, it is the one symptom of schizophrenia that remains the thing we don't talk about. Yeah. Anyway, uh, when I had the traumatic brain injury, uh, I had such just an overwhelming feeling of guilt. And I had, I had, I had spent all of this time. I'd been to psychiatrists for 10 years and they had worked with me. And, but this was the first time where, I was like breaking down where I was overwhelmed with guilt and it was weird because no one else was injured. I was the only person in my car. There were no other cars involved. Um, and, but I just, I couldn't handle the guilt of this. And I called a helpline, like what, not the suicide helpline, but a helpline for, for mental stuff. And I said, I don't, I don't know what to do. And they hooked me up with a therapist and it was the first time in my life that I'd ever been to a therapist. And um, and he helped me so much. Like, I can't believe that I, there was a time in my life when I didn't have a therapist. Like, and I am such an advocate now for everybody, regardless of whether you've got a mental illness or not, everybody ought to have a therapist. I've, I've had a therapist for about three years now. And, and I... I mean, I, you know, everybody has their things, right? Uh, but I, I don't have anything severe. But man, it's just so nice to pay somebody that you can talk to about literally anything. No social barriers. No, oh, is my wife going to get annoyed if I mention this thing? You know, none of that. Like, it's just somebody that you pay to dump on. Yeah. <laughs> and I honestly, I'm, I'm also a huge proponent of that. I think it's very, I think it's very mentally healthy. <laughs> yeah, it, it really helped me. And so uh, since then I've got two of my kids I've got going in to see therapists and I keep trying to talk my wife into it, but she won't go. But I, I was curious if you found, um, if you found that your painting helps you with your illness. Um, and I, I asked this because as you know, and I've, I mentioned occasionally on the podcast that, you know, I'm married to somebody who has severe mental health issues and she, um, she has found over the last few years, especially that working on artistic projects really helps her stay grounded and helps her, uh, not focus on kind of the, the demons that are going on. Um, and I'm kind of curious if you have found that with art. Absolutely. Um, very much so my my situation right now um i'm in kind of a downward you're always in ups and downs uh and currently i'm in a downward trend for depression and um and what i have found is that i do my day job and I, well i wake up one of the things is because of my medicine, I wake up early. I wake up at like 5 a.m. And um, I wake up at 5 a.m. and I will paint or work on the blog for three or four hours. And then I'll start my day job. And I work from home on my day job. And I will do my day job. And as soon as I finish the day job, I crash. Uh, the depression hits. And I'm just like, everything is awful. I can't do anything today. And in the bad times, I will just get on Twitter and start scrolling. And, uh, and if no one stops me, I'll just do that for six hours and, and be miserable. But, um, my doctor put me on an, an up, an increased dose of medicine that I take just before work gets out, uh, that's supposed to help with depression. And I found that if I take that dose of medicine, 
I will hit a slump. It won't be as bad. And if I can force myself against my will, because I don't want to do it, but if I can force myself against my will to paint, or it's generally to paint, because in the evening I can't write. Uh, I do all my writing in the morning. If I force myself to paint, then I will come out of the slump and be fine for the rest of the evening. Yeah. And I might just paint for two hours and then I'll spend some time with the family. I have the most understanding wife. Like, like, and you, I am impressed with you because I think that it takes a lot to be the spouse of someone with severe mental challenges. My wife puts up with so much and she just knows that Rob is probably going to be in the office painting until 7 p.m. And that's how it's going to be. And maybe it'll be till 8 p.m. And but that's just the price we pay for having Rob functional. And she's extremely patient. And I, I don't know how I got so lucky to have such a patient wife. Well, I'm glad that you are. That's fantastic. I, uh, uh, that it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I have much more to add for that without, without revealing too much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was, uh, oh man, I had something very, I had something very deep I wanted to ask you and it's just totally fled my brain. <laughs> well, there's so much for that. Um, but I also have realized that uh, I've kept you for over an hour now. I, uh, I don't want to take up a bunch more of your time. Um, but we always like ending these episodes with a very simple question. What's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? All right. So you get two answers here because I listen to your podcast all the time. So I knew this question was coming. So the one answer that is appalling that you shouldn't like, I, I was going like a week ago. I thought, is this really the answer I'm going to give? And it really was. Um, I have. Uh, like you, I have, um, uh, comorbidities that don't like COVID. My wife has comorbidities that don't like COVID. So we don't go out very much. And, uh, we went out recently, like the first time that we had ventured out. Um, and, and I feel so stupid saying this. We went to Olive Garden <laughs> and I had fettuccine Alfredo. And I was like, oh, my gosh, someone has created divinity and put it on a plate. <laughs> and and it was just Olive Garden fettuccine Alfredo. But it was the first thing that I'd eaten at a restaurant in two and a half years. And so I thought it was so terrific. But my real answer was fortunate this week. Um, my work, I work remote, but there are about 15 of us who live in Utah of the company. And we all had a, a meetup at an African place. And um, I don't know the name of it. It was some kind of, I can't remember the first word in it, but it was African sweet corn. And it was this roasted, it was fresh corn, obviously not canned corn. It was fresh corn and it was roasted. And it had this uh, cream crumbly sauce on it. And it was, it was divine. I, I don't know what it was, but it was down in Lehigh, uh, Utah. And I'm definitely going down there again just to get this sweet corn. It was phenomenal. That sounds great. I, I'm not too far from Lehigh. I, I might have to hunt that down at some point. Yeah, it's that good. Sounds- Zulu Grill. Zulu Grill. Okay. I think I've driven past there, actually. No, that sounds great. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned Olive Garden because Olive Garden is one of those ones that I, I have become like, I've become a bit of a snob with Italian food. Um, when I lived in Cleveland, Cleveland has like a proper little Italy with some very good Italian restaurants. And and so my wife and I, you know, because when we first met, Olive Garden was like the pinnacle of our, you know, like eating experiences, you know, when you're called. Right. And so I've become a little bit of a snob, but I also like, there's part of me that still does kind of love like the almost like trashy Italian. Yeah. Um, you know, Olive Garden fettuccine Alfredo, what tasted good was like the cup of cream and the half a stick of butter. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, it's just pure calories. I mean, it's cream and butter and, and carbohydrates. 
and it was just so divine. <laughs> yeah, it can. It, when that hits the spot, it hits the spot so hard. Yeah. I love it. That was author and wargamer Robison Wells. Thanks again to Rob for coming on to chat. You can find Rob's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. As a quick reminder, jump onto Kickstarter to support my new Glass Immortals novella. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sunnell, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, and Talon for their backing on Patreon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.